Hello and welcome to the Irish Pages podcast. Today we're concentrating on the new edition, The Anthropocene, and I'm very pleased to have with me Chris Agee, the editor of Irish Pages, and three contributors to this very timely issue, Robert Allen Jimison, Alec Finlay and Gary McKenzie. All three are Scottish, all three are concerned as artists and visual artists and poets with place, landscape, identity and, of course, the climate crisis. I'm Kathleen Jamie. I'm the Scottish editor. You'll hear my voice as well. We propose a series of short conversations with each of the participating poets concerning the work that they have included in this issue of Irish Pages. So I hand over to Chris Agee, the editor-in-chief, for a few words. Thanks, Kathleen. Delighted to be here. Delighted to be speaking directly with the three contributors. We'll start with Gary, whose new book, Ben Doran, a Conversation with a Mountain, has in fact been shortlisted for Scotland's National Book Awards in the poetry category. An extract of Ben Doran is included in the current issue. So I'm going to focus on this book, Ben Doran, A Conversation with a Mountain, which is also published by the Irish Pages Press. Gary, I find myself wondering how Ben Doran took shape imaginatively, your psychodynamics of composition, so to speak. Did it begin with smaller lyric passages that were then built up slowly into the final eight-part structure? Or was the controlling long poem frame right there from the beginning, inspired by Duncan Ban McIntyre's praise of Ben Doran in Gaelic? Yeah, hi, Chris. Hi, Kathleen. Great to be with you today. Yeah, so I, I've known and enjoyed Duncan Ban McIntyre's poem for a long time and have admired some of the earlier English translations of it. And really what I wanted to do in, in my version of it was something a little bit different from what had been done in translations before. So earlier translations in English of the poem really want to capture the wonderful rhythm and, and sound and texture of um, what, the, what McIntyre's poems like as a poem. Whereas I wanted to focus on a different aspect of the poem, uh, the uh, energy, the light, the movement, the biodiversity of this wonderful 18th century poem, which is kind of like a biological field study. It's very literal. It's very descriptive of what McIntyre can see and hear um, and responds to in the landscape. Um, so right from the, the start, I wanted to I, I wanted to explore that in a translation of the whole poem. And uh, originally, it just started as a project to, to translate the poem. And as I went on, I felt like there was a lot of space here to, to add in my own material. Uh, so I've brought in references to contemporary ecological science, environmental philosophy, stuff to do with the politics of land use in Scotland, some details of McIntyre's life on occasion, stuff to do with other Gaelic and Celtic literature and the nature tradition, uh, mythology surrounding red deer. The poem's really about one mountain in the Highlands and it's heard of red deer. So yeah, the structure of translating the poem as a whole in its eight sections was was there from the start. And as I went along, I felt like there were there were natural pauses in McIntyre's poem, natural spaces where more stuff could be added in. So where I where I could embellish or extend or sometimes explain what McIntyre is doing. His poem's wonderfully immediate because it feels like the guy just walks into the landscape and he's just saying what he can see. And there's sort of one thing after another and his excitement about what he can see and hear is, is right there in the middle of the poem. But that means that um, there are little pauses where you can almost hear him going, what will I mention now? What will I notice now? And those are the places where I've uh, leapt in. 
and and extended what he said or or added stuff to what he said. Sometimes that might contradict what he says. I'm you know drawing from the contemporary world, not a world he'd have known. He's um, composing the poem in the middle of the 18th century. Sometimes it, it really expands on what he said. So there's a section in my translation called the rut where I found a small number of lines, half a dozen lines in McIntyre's poem that were describing deer sort of friskily gambling across the hillside and. I felt like that was a sort of euphemistic way of describing the rutting behavior. The more I looked into how red deer rutting behavior, the more I felt like, yeah, that's what he's doing, just not in much detail. So I expanded it and I've got 10 lines of his description translated, interwoven with uh, maybe 60 or 70 lines of my own, which go into quite a lot of detail about um, the rut and the sexual behavior of red deer, which is not something that was really in McIntyre's poem in any detail. I hope it's the first detailed description of red deer sexual behavior in Scottish poetry and it, it you know it draws on, on sometimes quite scientific language sometimes quite a sort of poetic figurative approach to, to that yeah so there's really all the way through I was working through the whole poem all eight sections of McIntyre's and wanting to add in stuff of my own whenever there was a natural pause or somewhere I could embellish somewhere I could add in order to make a dynamic backwards and forwards I should also say that um, if you look at the poem on the page the translation of McIntyre is on the left and on the right-hand side of every page is that's generally where my interjections are and my additions and um, glosses on the poem. So there's a sort of backwards and forwards on every page between McIntyre and me and sometimes the voices blend and, and confuse each other. I think McIntyre would love this. I wish we could bring him on to this Zoom call to, to listen to it. I think he would thoroughly enjoy it. Um, can I ask you, you're not a native Gaelic speaker, Gary, are you? Did you learn Gaelic or did you work through English translations? Yeah, so I I was studying uh, landscape poetry about 10 years ago. I, d- I did a PhD in it and I really wanted to write about Sorley Maclean's poetry as, as part of that, alongside a lot of English language poetry and not to, you know, I wanted to bring him into this wider conversation about contemporary landscape poetry, um, particularly his wonderful poem, The Woods of Rassi, which... Um, um, a bit like McIntyre's is a sort of extended detailed description of a landscape. Um, McLean's a much more symbolic kind of writer as well. You know, it's not as literal as McIntyre, but he's really influenced by McIntyre and has written a lot about him. Uh, so I did an evening class in Gaelic um, in order to try and get a sort of approach to the to the language to to um, to not be completely bamboozled by by the look and the sound of it. And working through the translation, it's um really been a case of, I've, I've relied quite heavily on uh, Dwelly's Gaelic English Dictionary alongside existing translations. And, you know, I, I've translated every uh, everything on the left of the page in, in, in my Ben Doran comes from McIntyre and comes from my figuring out, I sort of started with a very literal rendering of what he was doing and then thinking, how can I make this language that kind of lives in modern English and is maybe a bit more informal and everyday than a uh, than some of the other translations of it. Yeah, and I've, I've run sections of it past Gaelic speakers as well. <laughs> Please say I'm along the right lines. But at the same time, I wasn't aiming at complete 100% fidelity to an original, certainly not in the, in the literal sense, you know, fidelity to what I think the mood and the feel and the driving rhythm of the poem is, but not on a word-by-word level, always really being, you know, trying to make a sort of documentary revelation of what the poem is for someone reading it in English. I think that's the way forward in Scots as well as Gaelic, with a yeah, fusion, a, a breaking open and extending. Very good. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel that a, a translation has to has to work in the language it's being translated into, or else mm -hmm. there's outside of a scholarly context, there's hardly any reason for someone to want to read it as a poem. And existing translations of MacIntyre really kind of exist in the Scottish literary scene, you know, to a large extent. I think it's sort of scholarly or, you know, anthologies of, of Scottish poetry sort of deal with those translations. Whereas I wanted to write something that potentially someone with no interest in Gaelic poetry prior to this would want to read and it would make sense to them in a sort of, you know, 20th, 21st century idiom, you know, and I was, the way it's laid out on the page, I mean, it doesn't, on a word by word level, it maybe doesn't feel like a poem by someone like Charles Olson, but it maybe looks like it on the page because the words are leaping around, you know, there's a part where young deer are, are playing and gambling on the hillside and the words jump around as well, that sort of thing. So yeah, I was translating into a different poetic tradition than maybe the way it has yeah. been translated before. That's no, a triumph, well done. Chris? Yeah, I just have a follow-up question, Gary. Would you expand a, upon how the poem's episodic structure, which you referred to previously, is influenced by, by what we would now call traditional music, specifically the pibroch, if I'm pronouncing it right, or pibroch? You do allude to it at several points through the poem. Yeah, so the pibroch is the kind of, I suppose you might say, the high art of Gallic culture. It's one of the great achievements in Gallic culture, a type of bagpipe music very sort of formal bagpipe music, which is based on a, a, a sort of simple melody um, in, in the first movement. And as the, as the piece goes on, it becomes more and more complex. The piper adds in more and more notes between each note of the original melody until they're playing at the limit of his or her ability. And this was a form that was around in McIntyre's time. It was a form which several poets, including him, wanted to emulate in language. That's that's kind of you know something he was aiming to do in terms of the rhythm, starting with a basic theme, and and developing it and adding to it as the poem went on. So I I, I thought brilliant. That's you know a ready-made form in which there's this basic template and you're adding stuff into it. And the pibroch is not improvisation. It's very very um, regular and rigid, but it's still like a form where you, there's these spaces that you want to fill with um, sort of a virtuoso intervention. So I thought, great, that's that's how I'm going to translate the poem. I'm going to, you know, start with this this kind of you know basic model, which is McIntyre's original poem, and add things in which take it in a different direction. The other point about that is McIntyre's original um, has this wonderful driving rhythm to it. It's a huge amount of energy to it. It's very alliterative. There's a lot of rhyme and sound effects like that. And it has a lot of pace. And it, I, I tended not to translate trying to emulate that because I felt like there was no way to do that over the whole poem without mangling the English language, you know, messing around with word order and, and so on. And I think previous translators have tried to do that. That wasn't what I wanted to do. But there are occasions where I give a little blast of, of that kind of rhythm and that kind of melody alongside other rhythms and melodies. I had in my mind, you know, we're already in the territory of comparing poetry to music. So I wanted to had had in mind the sort of music that samples and blurs together different genres in a kind of, I suppose, postmodern kind of way, mixing them all together. So could I give you just a little blast of um, about 10 or so lines where I wanted to, there's a small number of times when I tried to emulate the um, sort of driving energy of the Gaelic original. Uh, so there's four lines first of my translation, and then it goes into um, a, a sort of rhythmical verse, which is, which is trying to emulate McIntyre. It's describing... A deer on the hillside. There's a lot of deer on the hillside in this poem. There's a nifty wee buck, a virtuoso on the hill, 
He never slips, never comes a cropper. He jinks over the slopes like a flying winger. He ranges through quarries, sure-footed, well-antlered. Come heather, come high ground, he climbs for the hell of it. Through bracken and brushwood, he freestyles, he wanders. At the foot of each gully, on the height of each hillock, he's playful, he's vital, long-strided, elusive. Brilliant. Thank you. And that's um, very much a hallmark of the way um, McIntyre writes. So much pace and energy, and there's just all this detail and all this stuff coming at you the whole time. Really adjective-heavy kind of poem as well. And, and for him, the virtuoso is, the virtuosic element is finding all the Gallic words that fit together to, to do that. I, I felt like I had to just do it in small blasts in, in my translation rather than the whole way through or you'd be you know, exhausted <laughs> after a couple of pages. Do you know if um, Duncan Ban was a musician himself? Not that I know of. As, as far as I know, this was this is what he was known for in his community. So he lived beside Ben Doran Mountain in the West Highlands near Bridge of Orkey and, and worked there. Um, and then later, in just after the mid-century, he moved to Edinburgh and was in the sort of city guard in Edinburgh for the rest of his life. I think very much felt removed from the landscape, which was very close to his identity when, when he went to Edinburgh. He was uh, illiterate. He composed orally and, and people wrote the poem down for him. So this magnificent achievement that he had all this presumably in his head and perhaps would perform it, you know, in some sort of version or other to, to, to people that would listen. But yeah, he's influenced in, in some, by some Gallic precursors who were riffing on the Pibroch form and that's, that's where it comes from in him. It'd be all right just to add a little thing. I had a, a recording in Gaelic from the 30s, a little 78, and I wonder if Duncan Van actually sang the poem as part of his memory. But I was also thinking in terms of this idea of innovative translation and these classic Gaelic texts that John Murray has a lovely work where he made a map of uh, President Bendoran, and he actually has a kind of theory of how the poem moves over the hill. So he actually really is describing a, a, a tension, a deer drive. So it's very interesting how people have approached the translation of a text in terms of an actual landscape. I made a work where we made a photo from Duncana of the 12 or 13 places that are named in Halleck, in Sorley McLean's Halleck. So in the same way, you can translate a poem into visual images, maps, or as you have done, kind of riff on it in a kind of Pibroch, com uh, a complex variation style. Oh, that's really great. I wish I'd known about this map of Ben Doran. I had not come across that. Um, I definitely did spend quite a lot of time with Ordnance Survey maps, you know, trying to figure out, you know, not all the place names mentioned by McIntyre are on a contemporary Ordnance Survey map or the language has evolved a bit over time. So you're sort of doing a bit of guesswork. There's definite, I mean, one interesting, really interesting thing to say is it's a poem about a mountain and poems about mountains, you sort of think of Wordsworth going to the top and feeling exalted and enlightened and looking down. McIntyre never goes to the top of Ben Doran. The summit's not mentioned whatsoever. And it doesn't seem like it's of interest to him. You know, what he cares about is, I guess, what Nan Shepherd would call the living bout to the sort of slopes of it and the diversity of it. And yet it definitely, I mean, you said about the, the deer hunt, um, the way people hunted deer in McIntyre's time was they drove them together and, and would shoot at that kind of sort of river of deer that's running past. Uh, very different from sort of deer stalking that comes a hundred years later. And yeah, the, the poem 
the, the climax of the poem is this drive and killing deer at the end of it. But yeah, I, I, I love this idea that you could explore the poem in a very different way by mapping it. It'd be really interesting to go to the places that McIntyre mentions and compare them to what the mountain's like now, which is very different. It's a much more, well, it seems like a, a far, far less rich ecosystem now than it was in McIntyre's time, which, which is sort of quite an important part of it. I didn't want to get into a documentary approach to the mountain myself, but it's a really interesting way to go with it. Just like to pick up a strand that you mentioned concerning his roots in the oral tradition. Like Cademan in England and Mohammed, in fact, in Arabia, McIntyre, as you've said, belonged to an old, uh, oral tradition and was, in fact, illiterate. So how aware were you of the interplay in your poem's conversation across the 250 years between his orality, as it might be called, and your textuality, and indeed very sophisticated intertextuality. It's really interesting. I mean, I guess, yeah, I'm writing in a very different tradition. I've got stuff on the page. I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down. I'm drawing on various texts in the poem, not just McIntyre's um, praise of Ben Doran. I suppose a couple of things. One is that I wanted the poem to, to sound good, you know, not the same music as McIntyre's original and not trying to emulate that except in little blasts in my English translation, but I wanted to almost create an an oral landscape. So I, I imagined it as a, almost like a poem where you can walk into the middle of all these different voices happening around you and all these different sounds happening around you. I sort of harbour the idea that the poem could work in a performance with various speakers at different corners of a room saying different parts of it so that the audience is in the middle, just like the audience is in the middle of a landscape with all these happenings going on around them, movements, sounds, smells and so on, you know, in a landscape. So I was definitely concerned with sound and um, with um, something oral, but not with just trying to emulate McIntyre's tradition. And then on top of that, I, I really wanted to bring in little snippets from other um, other other literature and juxtapose them. So there's a, a tiny little one I might just uh, share with you. There's a wonderful... Um, there's a book called A Celtic Miscellany, an anthology of old Celtic writing by Kenneth Hurlstone Jackson. It's one of those old um, penguin paperbacks I was looking at the other day, and it's something like 50 pence to buy when it was new. And um, uh, in that, he has um, a, a translation, which was a, a margin note by a, a scribe in a, in a monastery. Um, so working on a manuscript. And in the margin, he's just written something um, uh, which, I, which I kind of incorporate in my poem just as a way of gesturing towards a Gallic language um, nature tradition. Uh, so it's, it's uh, four lines in the middle of this little section of the poem. This is from part four of the poem. Turn back a page in the register of time and read an earlier inscription. Raven quill, oak, oak apple ink, a monk, a vellum margin. The sunlight through the willow leaves flickers over my page and brings me joy. An instant brought continually into being, a scribe's humble art, a man who, like Duncan Ban, is swept off his feet by the world. I just, I just fell in love with this idea of a monk stopping to note down the sunlight through the willow leaves and the pattern of it through the window on his page as he's writing and, you know, recording that alongside, I forget what it is, but, you know, a gospel passage or um, accounts or whatever it might be. And, you know, so I wanted to put McIntyre in conversation with texts, even texts he wouldn't have known himself. 
to, to sort of expand the, the landscape of the poem. Well, one further question on, on the oral tradition. Uh, you mentioned his awareness of the, the Pibroch tradition and or the parallels that he might have with this. Do you have any view on the other oral sources of McIntyre's incredible quality? In particular, here in Ireland, I'm wondering, was McIntyre's formation similar to that of the classic Irish Philly poet within an elite Gallic order, or was he more sui generis, more remnant? The, the classical Irish poet, of course, was trained orally and was often illiterate, but he doesn't seem quite to fit that model, even though he's part of the continuum of the Gallic world from the Isles to Kerry. Yeah, he's not, as far as I understand it, a kind of court poet in any way or a clan poet. He's sort of more autonomous than that. He was very engaged with what was going on in his world. He's very concerned with what we'd now call the Highland Clearances and the processes happening with that. You know, he wrote poems in praise of the foxes that would kill the sheep who had taken over the hillsides, you know, and the sheep were a devastation to him, um, destroying the landscape. He would have felt the same about the sort of commercial deer stalking, I think, if, if that had been around in his time. So yeah, he's he is sort of very much in the Gallic tradition, but he's not in it as a sort of establishment poet, if that, if that makes sense. And um, I think I wanted to give a sense of him in, in my translation as being someone who's just intimately connected with this landscape and he's writing out of love for the landscape. He's not writing, I don't think, for a particular audience or market. So there's the way I've translated, there's often crazy to like, look over there at that, that deer on the hillside, or he stops to interject and says, oh, I just love the sound of the deer calling on the hillside. It's better than all the bards in the Irish and Gaelic tradition. He sort of says something like that at one point. You know, I wanted to very much put him in that place and put him in that landscape. Although occasionally there's, there's one section of the poem where I'm sort of think, imagining his afterlife in Edinburgh, missing the, the sound of the hill and not being able to sleep in the city, you know, with all the city sounds because he's he's divorced from this this place that's kind of very close to him. So we'll turn down to, to, to Alan Jimison, Robert Alan Jimison, who has written an extraordinary document called Play Clothes from his time recovering from COVID um, last year. And Alan, could you tell us a wee bit about this daily, almost daily habit of, of writing a poem? It seems to me, as a poet, extremely energetic. I guess you weren't in the, you weren't suffused with energy at the time, though. It was a sort of a recovery process for me. I'd been ill maybe for about three weeks or so, quite ill, fevered and unable really to do anything. And I'd been, you know, doing little daily updates on my progress. And at one point I thought, that one is quite poetic. And so I just reset a few lines. And then it became a, not a daily habit initially, but it was a way really of responding to this strange world that I'd woken up out of the fever in and uh, trying to make sense of everything that was going on, not just in, in the immediate environment. Um, I live in quite a quiet place here, but suddenly because of lockdown, there were hundreds of people past the window. I, I had to let the shrubs grow just so they couldn't look in my window. <laughs> But uh, also beyond that very local impact, there was also the question of what was going on in the news and the way that the leaders globally were, were responding to the, to the pandemic. So it, it became a little way of, I suppose, um, 
you know, testifying to, to the, the, the experience of living through that. Uh, and I was very much aware that what I was going through was not really everybody's experience. Some were in the front line doing incredible things. So the, the poems were all very personal and, and each begins with the first person I, just to sort of emphasize that, that, that uh, this is what I, I'm, I'm going through as opposed to what the world is. So it, it, was, a, it was a recovery treatment, a, a therapy, just to try and sort of focus at a time when everything seemed very blurry and strange. Would you care to read us a section? I'll read you one of the poems, I think, which is one of the longer ones. I don't really regard them all as poems. Sometimes they, they, they were just sort of passing thoughts. I didn't really work the language as uh, a, a poet might do. Um, but in a few cases, I did. I would disagree with that, but, but you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a few cases, I did sort of uh, go a little bit farther. I had a little bit more energy some days than, than others. So th this was from the 28th of April. I dated them all just so that it would have that kind of journal effect over a period of a month. And uh, this was really the first time when I went out into the garden, which I'd completely ignored and, and neglected, uh, having been ill for the, the previous, you know, the time when you would be out there in the garden clearing things up and doing the, the, the spring work, the vorwerk, as we say in Chapman. So this is, I considered going feral. The garden had seemed a place of shame, overgrown with a sick spring idleness. The sign I made last year, old already. Stonework pocked with aisles of moss. The pond, a pool of rotting leaves and twigs. The fancy shop-bought windbreak, broken. The lawn, a sunny dandelion thick pile. The cloche, an ocean of forget-me-not. Yet the cherry tree still drops white blossom. The lilac bloom still casts an aromatic spell. I check the chaos, find beauty firmly rooted, smiling as the bees fulfill their careful duties. Two tabbies prowl through long grass, catching nothing but the wind from a butterfly's wing. All kinds of creatures, most tinier than human eyes can spot, creep in this miniature universe. The soil is seething, a healthy mass of friable life. Seeds sprout, unsown. I feel somewhat unsettled to be so little missed. This summer, maybe I should just observe, let all unfold this constant wilding. Our straight lines, close crop hedges, all that mowing, the wish for outside to be neat like inside seems wrong. Let me roam around the long grass as the cats are, roll about in sunshine. I know I'll heal much faster. There, now tell me that's not a poem, thank you. Oh, that one is. I would admit I did work that one a bit. And we ought to say that you, you were seeding these onto um, Facebook all the while, were you not? Yeah, I mean, that was my only connection. Well, not just Facebook, but social media generally with, with the world. And uh, so 
there was strange inversion in a way that, that uh, um, you know, people who were very far away suddenly were right there with you. And those who were your friends and neighbours, you couldn't really mix with in, in the, the same way. Yes. So you made social media work for you. It, it absolutely did. I mean, I got a lot of very positive and encouraging responses, you know, not just to the writing, but get well, you know, just keep going, get better. In fact, you called it a love stream, not a live stream. This was a, one of the, the striking things, I think, about those first few weeks. Um, the number of people who were just sort of doing things for free. And, you know, now everybody's doing live streams. But at that time, it was quite a strange thing. And one day, I, I just made that little connection between live stream and love stream. And I thought, you know, that's what we're doing. We're kind of sharing that support, that love, all of us. And, and people far away, you know. One particular Friday night session that I, I, I got very uh, involved in, which was the Faroese singer Ivor, who did this little family shows from her house in Copenhagen. And, you know, we would all sit down with her on a Friday night for a couple of hours. And she was just a performer who really wanted to perform and couldn't. So this was for her great therapy as well. Chris? Yeah, I gather that your recovery was spurred on not only by the writing of these poems, but by the painting of numerous pictures. Why do you think that such creativity seems to have proved so therapeutic, as you mentioned? It's not necessarily evident that creativity proves therapeutic, but it appears to have been both paintings and poems in your case. Well, I think I would contest the notion that creativity isn't therapeutic. I think it absolutely is at all levels, from small children to very old people. You know, to be making things is a wonderfully therapeutic thing to do. And it doesn't really matter, you know, whether it's art or qualifies according to some arbitrary standard. I mean, what matters is the sheer pleasure and enjoyment that comes from making things. And, and uh, you know, it could be poetry, it could be paintings, it could be bread, as a lot of people did make during the lockdown. Um, but just to be engaged on a task that somehow focuses you, you know, to be present within the, the making is, is indeed a very therapeutic thing to do. One of the poems, in fact, describes a neighbor, I guess, returning to his boat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to, to to do some kind of work on his boat. That's right. That's another making of something. Absolutely, and and uh, you know, a lot of people suddenly had time on their hands to to explore things, perhaps that they they hadn't really done before. Um, so so the, there was a sort of a personal revolution taking place within all our our locked down houses during that time. I hope some of that will last. I hope that some of the lessons people have learned um, through the pandemic and through lockdown will make a difference and socially. Obviously, the concerns that we have about um, the, the state of the planet and, and climate change, we need more than just the individual to be making changes. We need a little bit of political will. But um, we, we can all do uh, things at that local level, at that personal level, uh, and you know, just live a smaller life. I think consume less and, and travel less, and you know, these personal. I wouldn't even regard them as sacrifices. It's just a new focus in in your life. They do add up. Uh, you know, if you have a, a a society or a community moving in that direction, of course, it it, it will make a difference. So making changes and making things might just be connected. 
Well, um, if people were to divert a little more time in, into their own creativity and less into the business of buying and consuming, then yes, I, th I think that would help, definitely. So you have enough of these poems to form a, a book now, Alan, don't you? The, the, the book, uh, Play Clothes, yes, it, it emerged pretty quickly from, a again, a sort of a, a, a lockdown uh, um, idea. Um, I thought, because of the number of people who were responding on social media, it would be nice to make copies for a few of them, you know, and just sort of send them out as a gift for the support that, that, that I felt they'd given me, you know, during that difficult time. Um, but when I floated the idea, then then suddenly it wasn't 30 people, it was a couple of hundred. And I thought, I can't do that at home on, on, on the little printer. So I spoke to my son, who, who uh, had expressed an interest in having a small press a while back, and uh, we came up with an idea whereby I, I would make the book and send it out as a gift to people, but they would then contribute to a crowdfunder to help establish this small press. And lo and behold, it all happened, not without quite a lot of sweat and labor, but we we, uh, we sent out over 200 copies to every continent in, in the, the world in over 30 countries because the community was not localized. It, it was via social media. And that seemed like a really good thing to do at a time when we were also disconnected from one another. I love the metaphor of the last poem, which gives the book its title. Would you like to comment on that? It was a very striking end to the book. Well, I mean, after a month of doing this, I, I was pretty exhausted. And uh, I just felt as if I needed to do something different, something more than writing a little sort of daily update poem or, or, or whatever. And, and so, um, as with any long project, you reach a point where you just want to burn it all. <laughs> and so I, I had this fantasy of just... You know, burning all these poems in a bonfire, and, and um, I used the term "plague clothes" that they had become like the the, the bed clothes or, or the clothes you've been wearing while you've been ill. And and it it was my uh, friend in poetry, Miranda Pearson, who picked out that phrase as the title. She said you should call it "plague clothes," and right away it made sense. Um, and uh, I haven't yet burned them, but uh, sort of metaphorically, I did in that last poem. Well, you can't burn them because we all have copies of play clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's become something very other in, in book form. Uh, I mean, it, it sort of crystallizes and finalizes and, and beautifies in some way what was otherwise an extremely difficult time. It changes subject a wee bit, Alan. We were speaking to Gary about the movement back and forth between Gaelic and English, and, and you're of course a Shetlander, and well known for working with the Shetland, um, shall we say, language dialect. Which would you prefer? I mean, I, I, I don't think it makes much difference what you call it. The important thing is that it continues to be used, and, and that people so just try to stretch it a little bit. And it's not just simply conversational, but it can also be a medium for serious writing. Yes, entirely, and and and. Much of that work in the, this century and late last century has been associated with yourself. I think you're the first person I knew to a, come from Shetland and be use this this Shetlandic language. You know, so we owe you a lot. Are you still working in Shetlandic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's one of my my two languages. Really, I've, I've been educated in English since age five, but otherwise, uh, the, the dialect, as as people tend to refer to it locally, uh, is one of the strands. And 
um, you know, certain ideas, certain projects fit more neatly into that, especially if if the subject is sort of local. But uh, sometimes it's nice to address the global with that local voice, though, and, and that can also give rise to you know interesting effects. What I would say is that I'm, I'm I'm not the first by any means. There's a very long tradition, 150 years or so, of, of writing in the dialect, but this work was never really circulated outside the islands. You know. Plenty of, of, of good folk before me, but also many uh, younger writers who've emerged in, in the last few years. I think one of them, Roseanne Watt, a, yes. a former student of your own. Indeed, yes. So it, it's a very healthy scene uh, in, in, in terms of uh, the number of people that are active and the number of good books being produced. Uh, an amazing number for a population that's really only 22,000. So. Do you have anything to hand that you could read us in Shetland? Maybe something from North Atlantic Drift, which was a truly brilliant book with both English okay. and, and um, Shetlandic Scots and convinced me once and for all that it was, in fact, a language completely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure, that, as I say, that, that debate will go on, but it does have a grammar and, and it does have a lexicon, which is kind of subtly different from everywhere else. And that's, so I think it qualifies. I would say that the work in this book here, North Atlantic Drift, it's, it's very much a sort of con conversational and everyday form of the dialect, unlike some of the writing that I did earlier. Uh, and that was a very sort of conscious decision. Um, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, Gary mentioned Charles Olson earlier, that in the phrase of his, the minims of language were really important in creating sort of sense of the dialect, not not the old words out of the dictionary, you know, the polysyllabics that people people love, but just the little things, you know, and, and how apostrophes were used and the, the small stuff. Okay, this is kind of uh, impromptu here. The, the book itself was a sort of a tribute to the tradition of uh, the merchant navy, which was a huge thing in, in Shetland, as with a lot of other island communities historically. So there was always that sense of there being men absent and, and the women in their absence had to do some of the hard graft around the crofts, all of it, in fact. And then these men would reappear, um, you know, on leave for a month or whatever, or six months if they were lucky. Uh, so then the, this is... Um, poem called A Put a Blue Jube. Jube is an old Norse word meaning the, the deep sea. To come back safe or no for the sea brought the world him to them. To seize the why the world comes to us is the boat one in. Near every house a merchant seaman a tillet, father, uncle, son, gathering queer pity bits of the broad world and ah, its fremit tongues for folk to gawk at. Men gain a couple of year that reappear, mysterious, distant hit seas shining up at their sat leathered skins, their eye laven somewhere. <laughs> I don't know, do you, do you need the English? <laughs> okay, to come back safe or not, from the sea brought the world home to them. The seas, the way the world comes to us. Has the boat come in? Near every house had a merchant seaman in it, 
a father, uncle, son, gathering strange little bits of the broad world and all its foreign tongues for folk to gawk at. Men gone for a couple of years that reappear mysterious, distant, hot seas shining on their salt-leathered skins. They're permanently leaving somewhere. So that's a sample. Alan, thank you very much. So, Alec Finlay, I think, is joining us from Edinburgh. Your contribution, Alec, it, it sort of allies with, with what Alan was speaking about, the awful experience of having had COVID and the, the recovery, or can we call it a recovery? Are you recovered? I made it to the bus stop at the weekend. Good. I certainly identify with what Alan was describing in this very local world, a world of limit, finding much joy within that. You did find joy within it. I do constantly, but I became ill with, we think of long of COVID and long COVID, which I have as part of a family of post-viral illnesses. I got ME when I was 21 at university in the landscape where you teach at Stirling. And so my world changed before I entered the world proper. I didn't have the opportunity to go into a world of work. And it was through creativity that I kind of shaped a sense of a life, a productive life. And so I then got swine flu very badly for about five months in, was it 2010 or wherever? So I've always been, I think, in that Poundian sense, of kind of the antenna of the race. So I knew this was coming. I knew there would be a virus that would come. And I remember MERS and these viruses that didn't quite become world pandemics. And I always was aware that something might come and I might not make it. And then when COVID came, I was just ahead of Alan. I got it the day before lockdown. Uh, Boris is dilly-dallying. And I started to edit my collected poems, you know, in a fever. and. Um, gradually realized that I wasn't going to die and didn't need to go to hospital and that I more had this change of phenomenological experience, your body changes, that really it just exacerbated my ME. And two things I did very early on was I produced a creative toolkit for people who were isolating, um, people who were in lockdown, people who were being impacted. And I got Chris Watson to release a copy of a couple of audio walks. But really what I wanted to say by that is I I knew the experience that almost a million people are now having. I knew it already. So I felt a little bit like a kind of Dante. And what I wanted to do was to help guide them through that hell, that shock. And I'm watching them. I'm not on social media, but I'm on some of the long COVID patient-led platforms and just watching people go through shock, adjustment, realignment of their life, losing relationships, jobs, losing homes, but also appreciating their life differently and accepting limits. So maybe this key term would be around the idea of limit and the local and something we can talk more about, but it's the thing I I really wanted to focus on was this idea of 
slow recuperation of a body and slow remediation of a landscape. Landscapes recover slowly. And with chronic illness, I can't answer the question, is there recovery? But I can describe a spectrum of experience and I can say what I can do now. And you can use that as a a metaphor, if that's the word, for for landscapes which have been damaged and which are now, which may be brought back into a healthy state. You could call it a metaphor. You could call it practical science. I always think of the example of the shelvings in West Lothian. Thought of as when we when we were growing up as eyesores, people every now and then on reporting Scotland saying we must get rid of these. They're they hurt us. They're an insult. They're not natural. And now they're special scientific sites which have rare plants. And there was an English artist called John Latham who kind of declared them to be an earth goddess. He saw photos of them from above and he called them Nidri women. And he didn't make a work of art. He just named it. And I, I really love that as a model for what art can do. And he prophesized their recovery for us. But we have learned to understand that that recovery of what seemed to be waste, spoil we call it, uh, can be enacted over decades of a life, my lifetime, your lifetime. The, the, the piece you contributed to, to Irish Pages is called On Not Walking, which speaks directly to limitations, enabling other people, as you say, to overcome these limitations. I, I guess it extends way beyond COVID. Anybody who's suffered a what they now call a life-limiting injury or a life-limiting effect will, will be in that place that you describe you know, of, of re-evaluation, shock, I should imagine, if, especially if it's an accident, the shock must be immense. And, and you're speaking increasingly about working with other people in proxy. Can you speak to that a wee bit? I can. I'm going to pick you up on something, and I don't have an answer to this, but trying to find a better word than overcome, and I don't have one, but we have these models of overcoming disability. And I don't know if the shelvings overcame the spoils so much as they adapted. Maybe the, the word is adaptation. And Alan was talking about creativity. Creativity is our best tool of adaptation. That's a, that's a wonderful, um, what's the word? And I'm writing that down. Creativity is our best tool for adaptation. I remember you talking to me when you had cancer about how the medical process was one thing and then you knew you were okay and then a shock hit you and you actually came to terms with it in a different level of your psyche. It's interesting that, that um, this is recurring now, isn't it? How we have, in our various ways, found immediately our creative selves. I'm, tra- I'm struggling for words now. I'm not going to use overcoming, healing, exploring even, you know, into a, a new life. That's fascinating. I think that because of my ME, I'll talk about proxywox in a second, but to build up to that, if, I can't explain it, but there's a ridiculous cussedness in me that kept making work about wild places. Even though you couldn't reach them bodily. I spent five years making a book about the Cairngorms and I've never climbed a mountain in my life. I like that. <laughs> There's a very odd 
feeling of permission there. I call it self-commissioning. And the way I would do it is using place names, Gaelic place names, to understand what I was looking at. And really, it would be about finding an experience of how to belong. Because if you can't walk, then the issue of how to be in the landscape is asking you different questions. And belonging can come from identification. So the names would tell me in the way that we're talking about in Ben Doran, we'll have a name of a wood and there's no wood there. We're referring to, to brushwood, you know, is there any? Is there juniper? Is there a young birch coming? We can use the names to think about past, present and future. And we can then think about our own body in that sense. And I'll talk about proxy walking in two different ways. There's a separate project I'm doing called Day of Access. When I was doing the Cairn Gorms project, I was working with the wonderful Chris Watson, who does field recordings. And we were recording fauna uh, in their place name. So uh, there's a Gaelic place name that means the burden of the golden plover. So we had to go up there and record and see if there were actually golden plovers still there. So a name that's two, three, four, five hundred years old is a, an ecological record. Same way as people drill into glaciers. And we had to get the equipment up the hill. And you know how there are all these new hill tracks all over the highlands built without permission. Well, there was one. And so we got to drive up and suddenly I was on a mountain. And it was incredible emotionally for me. I was only there because we had to take up the recording equipment. No one thought to do it for me. And I didn't think to do it for myself. But as soon as that happened, I realized I was going to make a project for people with chronic illness to use these hill tracks and take them up on mountains. And the other aspect of it is a proxy walk is for someone that can't walk, someone walks for them. So I remember being able to walk around Stony Path where I grew up. I could get someone that had never been there to walk over to the Anson Burn. And for the same hour on the same day, they would do the walk and I would remember it. And we'd both write down me what I remembered, they what they saw. So there's two transactions happening there. There's an art, an art of solidarity, someone simply going for me. And then there's also the written art of how do we use language to describe. And I want to create a parallel text where my memory and their immediate response to somewhere they don't know come together. Very like Ben Doran work in the sense of, yes. of having... A conversation. Yeah, conversation and a binaural uh, perception of a landscape and a text. Mm -hmm. Those are all ways of working that come out of my disability. But I never identified as being disabled till two years ago. Yes, this, this whole idea of a proxy walk, which you describe in your piece, is, is really fascinating. It just so happened that I ha had a very bad hip over the summer. And I found your piece full of insights. The way that the pain, which you describe so well, alters your sense of the environment in the broadest sense. It limits it. It changes your perceptions in all sorts of ways. And in some strange way, your body does become a link 
with your perceptions of the environment, which are suddenly limited. And when we were talking about this not so long ago, you used two phrases which I, I, I really loved, which is rewilding of the land contrasted with remediation of the body. So remediation might be the word that gets us around healing or any kind of final solution to pain, fatigue and suffering. And it involves a lot of psychological insight. And your piece was really very deeply moving on the psychological level, as well, of course, as the phys uh, on the physical level. I think they're both healing. They're words that come from, one comes from the family of ecology and one comes from the family of, of medicine. The, the land heals and the body heals. And... When you are, have an illness that's out with medical science, your healing is slower. It's more like the pace of a landscape. And th there's another phrase I would maybe add to this. When I wrote a manifesto for Day of Access, I realized that one of the things my community of people with illnesses like ME, MS, fibromyalgia, bought that was different to disability heroics was there are lots of people who lose their limbs from frostbite and then climb up mountains. There are lots of people that abseil in wheelchairs. But when you have an immune system illness or a limiting illness, you can't overcome. You have to simply find a way to sit in a landscape. And the sentence I came up with was, what would happen if we introduce vulnerable bodies into vulnerable ecologies? And I realized that in my lifetime, when I was growing up, I thought of a mountain as a very solid, monumental, massive thing. And through the development of ecology, I now think of it as mosses and lichens that are very vulnerable. I think of it as the effect of deer. We become aware almost of our own footstep as problematic. So... I wanted to bring that awareness of the fragility of ecology together with people who have fragile bodies. And on the first day of access, we took up a wonderful feisty guy who'd got polio when he was six months old and he walked with sticks. And he's a fighter for disability rights. And he wrote me after we went up, Neil Tarnachan, and he said, I loved what you did. I loved the day. I didn't like the word vulnerability. And I said to him, well, I have to be okay with that word. I don't have a choice. I am vulnerable. I'm not ashamed of that. And there are many things in nature that are vulnerable. We know that now. We no longer perceive just of trophy species, wolves and so on that seem active and dynamic. We're aware of mycelium. We're aware of a whole different level of scale. When you were talking about the Pibroch, I was thinking about that infinite variation being a little bit like how field recordings now take us closer to nature, which makes us aware of it at a different scale. And smaller scale is always to be aware of vulnerability. So that's my way of sharing my ongoing thought and one last thing I'll say about that is a key text for me is a book that Elaine Scarry wrote about pain. I think what artists try to do is bring different perspectives 
And Elaine Scarry wrote a book where she brought together people with chronic pain and people who've been tortured. And she compared their experiences of pain. And she said one very profound thing that has always stayed with me. She said, when we all experience pain, it's the most known intimate thing in our body. But when someone else experiences pain, all we have is our ability to believe them, their faith that we can compare it to our pain. I can't be in your body to feel your pain. And because I'd grown up with a contested illness, which had been generally dismissed and belittled by the medical establishment, I had to think about how I could represent my own pain. And the Elaine Scarry text meant a lot to me, but it could just as well be about how we understand how another animal or a plant experiences their world. So it's not just to write about pain as an individual, as a victim of it. It's more to say pain is one of our key phenomenological experiences from which arises empathy, solidarity, and the ability to represent. There's a crisis about representing illness. And we now have a culture kind of through social media that's having an incredible crisis about how to represent wound and hurt. And in one way, it's exaggerating it, and in one way, it's coming to terms with it. So as someone who wants to see change happen, I want to try and use art to talk about the complexity of these experiences, which includes that they can bring joy, they can bring empathy, they can bring limit, which can be a model of how to adapt a culture to limited energy, to a climate crisis. There's no one more, more able to talk about living with limited energy resources than people with chronic illness. It's such an interesting piece, is all I can say, in conclusion. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Irish Pages podcast. Thank you all. <laughs>